I'd like for you to take the Word of God, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And our text will be taken from uh, verses 13 and 14. Matthew chapter 7 and uh, verses 13 and 14. Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 13, the Bible says, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way, that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd Help us today to discern what it is that you're trying to communicate through the scripture here. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to gain an understanding of it. I pray that you would help us to believe it. And then, Lord, I pray as we leave, I, I pray that you'd help us to repeat it. Do something with it. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity of it. Now, God, help us. Help us to hear from you. And we're going to praise you. For all that happens, Lord, help me. Help me, Lord. Quiet my soul. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What would you think or do if, if I stood before you this morning and complicated salvation? What if I stood in this pulpit this morning and, and took the Word of God and added to it or took away from it and made salvation more complicated? What would you do? I hope I know what you would do. I hope you would either get me out or get out yourself and go find a church that's preaching the truth. Now, if I say something that's not true, I would like for you to come and tell me about it before you leave or before you try to run me out because the fact is I'm a human being and I could make a mistake. And I'm not so prideful as to say that, that I might make a mistake. I have made mistakes in the pulpit and, and what I've done to resolve it is get up the next time and say I was wrong. I've eaten crow in the pulpit. Now crow is bad enough on its own. But then to to season it with the pulpit, it makes it even worse. It's embarrassing. So I've tried to be very careful in my study of the Word of God. But you wouldn't stick around. You wouldn't want me to stand up here and complicate the matter of salvation. And so I'd like to talk about that this morning. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is concluding his Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is encapsulated in the chapters of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So by the time that we get to Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is winding down. Now, some of you think I preach a long time. I think Jesus probably went longer than I did last Sunday. By the way, I'm sorry for that. I, time just got away from me. And uh, we'll, try to, we'll try to shorten that up this week. But salvation is the context of Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 14. I'd like this morning for us to notice the use of the words straight and narrow in the context of salvation. Of course, 
taking that from verse number 14. Notice the word, use of the words straight and narrow in the context of salvation. What is being communicated by the use of the words straight and narrow? Straight and narrow. And so to understand what is being communicated by the use of these words, I'd like to start with what these words do not mean. I'd like to start with what these words do not communicate and what they do not mean. So number one, if you're taking notes, what the words straight and narrow do not mean. They do not mean salvation is difficult. Now, in full disclosure this morning, translations of the Bible besides the King James that utilize the corrupt, rejected manuscripts say this, difficult is the way which leads to life. And that is not what the words straight and narrow mean. Salvation is not difficult. To say the way which leads to life is difficult creates doctrinal error by leading a person to believe that salvation is a difficult thing. The idea that salvation is difficult is contrary to the teaching and truths to God's word. However, the idea that salvation is difficult fits well with the false doctrines that are taught by many man-made religions today. Man-made religion teaches that a person must trust Christ plus do other things. Man-made religion intermingles works with grace, law with faith. That's legalism. When you take the law and you mingle it with grace, that is legalistic. I know that some good Christian men that have preached the truth of God's word that have been accused of being legalistic because they have standards, but that's not legalism because I know that those men are not teaching those standards are a requirement for salvation. What legalism is, is taking the law and mixing it with grace, complicating and making difficult salvation. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There's not going to be any boasting in heaven of how well we kept the law. Well, I kept nine, all nine of the commandments. Well, nine of the ten, anyway. Well, I only kept five of the commandments. There's not going to be any boasting in heaven. Salvation is not by works. Salvation is by grace through faith, not of works. It's a gift. Man-made religion creates a difficult salvation because a person must do other things or they will not ultimately be saved. Salvation is not difficult. May I ask you a question this morning, and you don't have to answer out loud, but do you believe that children can trust Christ and be saved? Jesus said himself that one must come as a little child in order to have a relationship with God and to spend eternity in, in God's presence. We find that in Luke chapter 18 and verse 17 when Jesus was recorded as having said, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. Now if salvation were difficult... 
it would not be possible for a little child to be saved. We know that children can believe and receive the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And as a matter of fact, many of us in this room have tr uh, trusted Christ when we were still children. Statistics tell us that 90% of people believe on Christ before they turn 19 years old. 85% of those are saved between the ages of 4 and 14. Those are the most recent statistics that I could find, just a couple of years old. 85% of people trust Christ between the ages of 4 and 14. They come as little children. If salvation were difficult, a child couldn't be saved. The Bible describes salvation in terms that do not denote difficulty. The Bible teaches that salvation is as simple as drawing up close to somebody else. Now, it has to be the right somebody. Salvation is a who, not a what. And his name is Jesus. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He was talking to that group that was laboring to keep the law and found themselves not able to keep it. And having to go back over and over again to offer up a blood sacrifice for their sins. And so Jesus is speaking to that crowd of people when he says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. That denotes something that is easy, not difficult. Getting close to somebody who gives their life for us isn't a difficult thing, is it? The Bible teaches that salvation is as simple as, as drinking or eating. In John chapter 4, Jesus was in a country called Samaria, and he's talking to a Samaritan woman, and, and he met her at the well, and she was drawing water from the well. And he told that woman, Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. A few chapters later, in John chapter 6, Jesus is speaking to a group of people, and he said, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. And so these are not difficult things, are they? Eating, drinking, drawing up close to somebody. The Bible teaches that salvation is as simple as accepting a free gift. You know the idea of salvation being received like somebody would receive a gift is used 14 times in the New Testament. Just the New Testament. That idea that salvation is like receiving a free gift. We do not have to work for a gift, otherwise it's not a gift. You know, how at those uh, kiosks in the stores, like at Costco and different places, if you sign up on our mailing list, we'll give you a free gift. Well, it's not a free gift if you had to sign up for it. We'll, we'll give you a free gift if you, if you uh, apply for one of our credit cards. Well, that's not a free gift. It's going to cost you. You had to do something for it. Salvation is a genuine free gift. You don't have to do anything for it. It's like receiving a, a free gift. We don't have to work for a free gift. We don't have to pay for a free gift. To receive a gift, we simply reach out and accept it from the person that's offering it. Romans 6.23 tells us that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Getting close to somebody who gave their life for us, eating and drinking and reaching out to accept a free gift are not difficult things. The words straight and narrow do not mean salvation is difficult. Number two, the words straight and narrow mean there is only one way to salvation. 
Let me say that again. The word straight and narrow, this is what they mean. They mean that there is only one way to salvation. The terms straight and narrow that are used in Matthew 7.14 are two words with the same basic meaning. They refer to the truth that a person must put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone to have a relationship with God and to spend eternity in his presence. The words straight and narrow mean that there's only one way. It's like a turnstile gate. I was going to use the illustration of a head gate for cattle, but I didn't think you would appreciate being a, compared to cattle. So we'll use this illustration. It's like a turnstile gate. There's only one way through. Since I already mentioned the cattle, there's only one way for those cattle to get through that gate, and it's, it's one way. It's straight and it's narrow. It's not difficult for the cattle to get through, but they can't come back. They can't pull back and, and go the opposite direction. They, they, there's only one way. They can't go over a, a different direction. They have to go through that gate to get to where they think they want to go. For whatever reason is, they think they want to go there. But they, they've got to go that way. It's like a turnstile gate that we might find at, a, at, a, at an amusement park. And, or it's a, like a turnstile gate that you might see at a, at a sporting event. You know, they're counting the people coming through, and so you, you can only go one way. It's just one way. It's not difficult. If it was difficult, we wouldn't want to go there. Uh, we, it would be, they don't want to make it difficult for the patrons to get in, or a place that there's a, a high security. Sometimes they have those gates that there's bars in them, and you go through them as a turnstile, and you can only go one way. That's what the word straight and narrow mean. One way. Religion, this is a key. If you're here this morning and you've trusted in Christ, I hope that you'll repeat this statement to at least one person this week. Here's one of the things. I'll mention a couple of things today that would be good to repeat. Religion is not the way to God. God is the way to God. Religion is not the way to God. God is the way to God. In John 14, 6, we all know if you've studied your Bible and you know what the Bible says, and I know you do. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, one way. Jesus is God in the flesh. We see this in John chapter 1 and verse number 14. I'll go ahead and turn there since I mentioned it. I hadn't planned to, but... John chapter 1 and verse number 14 show us, one of the places that show us that Jesus is God in the flesh and the Word, the Bible says there, it capitalizes the word word, so we know that it's speaking of a person, a place, or a thing. We know that it's not a place, and we know it's not a thing, we know it's a who, and so it's Jesus, and the Word, Jesus, was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, Jesus is God. He's co-equal in power, he's co-equal in authority, he's co-equal in knowledge. In every possible way, Jesus is co-equal with God. He thought it not robbery to call himself equal with God. The Pharisees and, the, and those that lived during Jesus' time didn't appreciate the fact that he made himself equal with God. And over and over again in the New Testament record of Christ and his ministry, we find the, those people taking up stones to stone Jesus because in their eyes he had, he had uh, committed blasphemy and that he made himself equal with God. But he's God. Now Jesus is who he said he was or he was a raving lunatic. 
I think based on the evidence that we find in the New Testament and throughout history, we can say that Jesus was who he said he was. I believe he was. I place my faith and trust in him as God. Jesus is God in the flesh. That's why we say that God is the way to God, because what Jesus said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Religion is not the way to God. God is the way to God. Here's another thing that we can repeat maybe this week to help others understand why it's relevant to have Christ in their life. God did not come to establish a religion. God came to restore a broken relationship. God doesn't want us to have a religion. He wants us to have a relationship with him. Isn't that amazing? The God who created all of the universe wants us to have a relationship with him. That's why Jesus said, the fact that he came to restore that broken relationship in Luke 19.10, Jesus said that I came to seek and to save that which was lost. Here is what the Bible says about the condition of the person that is without Christ. Right here in Luke 19.10, we see that they're lost. I don't know if you've ever been lost, but it's a terrifying feeling. You feel like you're lost. I can remember one time in the woods where I felt like I was lost, and I thought, okay, I'm going to spend the night here. There's a terrifying feeling. It turns out I wasn't lost. I was just in the wrong place. And I made my way out. Praise God. I'm glad to stand before you and tell you I'm here. But that's what the Bible says is the condition, the description of those that are without Christ, they're lost. The Bible says they're perishing, John 3.16. The Bible says that they are under God's wrath. The wrath of God abideth on them, John 3.36. They're condemned already, without Christ, condemned already. It's not a matter of standing before God someday and hoping that the good outweighs the bad. The Bible says we're, that the person without Christ is condemned already. They're without hope. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 12. They're blinded by the devil. 2 Corinthians 4 verses 3 and 4. They're on their way to destruction. We saw that in Matthew 7 verse 13 in our text. They're on their way to destruction. They're dead. Ephesians 2. 1, the Apostle Paul writing on the divine inspiration of God is, uh, communicates to those Christians in Ephesus that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That is the description of the lost person in the Bible. They're, the, the person that's without Christ, they're lost, they're perishing, they're under God's wrath, they're condemned already, they're without hope, they're blinded by the devil, they're on their way to destruction, and they're dead in their trespasses and sins. Romans 5.12, the Bible says, By one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. In the beginning, God created. We find that in the account of Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 1, we see that triune God that we sung of just a moment, of, a moment ago. We read of him in Genesis chapter 1 that God said, let us make man in our image. And so God created, God created man. God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul, three parts, body, soul, spirit, just in the image of God, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit. So in the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created man. When man was created, God established a, a single boundary for him. One single boundary. He said, now, Adam, you can freely eat of all the trees in this garden, except for one. You can't eat of the tree through the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that thou eat thereof thou shalt surely die. God set that boundary. And to make a long story short, 
Man transgressed the boundary that God had set. When I use that word transgressed, I want to I define it. Transgression means to get outside the boundaries. Trespass means to go in a place where we don't belong. We do that too. But uh, God sets boundaries. God set boundary for that very first man. And man got out of those boundaries. He did the one thing that God said not to do. So Romans 5.19 goes on to tell us by one man's disobedience, that is Adam, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one, the Lord Jesus Christ, shall many be made righteous. The disobedience of Adam can be seen in the life of every human being that's born. It amazes me. I guess it shouldn't, but maybe I'm easily amazed. We don't have to teach children how to have good, bad manners. They have them automatically. We've got to teach them how to have good manners. We don't have to teach a child, typically, they're, they're, one of their very first words is, No! We have to teach them to say, Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Yes, sir. Yes, uh, yes, ma'am. So forth. We don't have to teach them the negative. They've got that down pat. We need to teach them the positive, how to live sober, righteous, godly, you know? You know what that is? That's, that's the evidence of the sin nature that we inherited from our first parents, Adam and Eve. Adam's transgression can be seen in the life of every human being. The Bible says it this way, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The obedience of Christ, on the other hand, can be seen in his submission to the Father's will. It can be seen in his sinless life. The Bible tells us that we have not a high priest, speaking of Christ, that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet he did it without sin. And so we see the obedience of Christ in his sinless life. We see the obedience of Christ in his baptism. There are some religions, man-made religions, that say you must be baptized in order to have eternal life, in order to, to, to find life. Well, that's just not true. And one of the evidences of that is, is when we see Jesus being baptized. If Jesus is God, why did he need to be baptized if baptism is for salvation? So the question is then, why did Jesus get baptized? Jesus got baptized because he was submitting to the Father's will. He was, he was providing an example of his death, burial, and resurrection. Do you remember what happened at the, at the baptism of Christ? God showed up and he spoke and he said, This is my beloved son in whom, whom I am well pleased. He said that because Jesus' baptism was evidence that he was submitted to the will of the Father. And Jesus being God knew everything that was going to take place at the, at the end of his life when he'd be crucified. And so that's another evidence that we know that Jesus was obedient was because of the way he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he knelt and was under such great strain and great pressure that the capillaries inside of his sweat glands burst and, and, and that he sweat blood. As he prayed, he was under this tremendous stress and he said, Oh, Father, if it be possible for this cup to pass from me. And, he's, and he stalled himself in his very words and said, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And so we see through just these evidences, the disobedience of Adam and the obedience of Christ that is described in Romans 5.19. God did not come to establish a religion, but to restore a broken relationship. Now here's another key point for us to pay attention to this morning. I think a lot of people are confused about this. 
And so I'll try to illustrate and, and explain this the best I can. God did not come to give us a good long life, nor did he come to save us from a bad short life. He came to save us from a bad eternity. God did not come to give us a good long life, nor did he come to save us from a bad short life. God came to save us from a bad eternity. Remember what we find in our text in Matthew 7, 13, broad is the way that leadeth to what? Destruction. That's why Jesus came. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than being now justified by his blood. We shall be saved from, the Bible says, wrath through him. Jesus came to save us from a bad eternity. Why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? And the answer to that is because God requires a blood payment for sin. When God came to Adam in the Garden of Eden and called out and said, Adam, where are you? And Adam said, well, we hid because we heard your voice and we were naked. And God said, well, who told you you were naked? Adam, did you do you know, he wanted, he knew what Adam had done, but he wanted Adam to agree with God about it, that he had sinned. And so Adam agreed with God about it, and what did God do? He, he covered them with coat, the, the skins of animals. Well, in order to skin an animal, you have to shed its blood. And right there from the very beginning, when, when Adam disobeyed God and plunged all of humanity uh, in, into condemnation, God had to shed blood in order to make atonement for that sin. Now, we, sometimes we think that the sacrificial system didn't begin until Exodus, but it began before that. And you see these offerings being made. As a matter of fact, between two young men, one was named Cain, the other was named Abel. And Cain's offering was rejected by God. Why? No blood. Abel's was accepted because it was a blood offering. And without the shedding of blood, Hebrews 9.22 tells us, is no remission. There's no removal of sin. By the way, the blood of bulls and goats wasn't enough. All that shedding of blood that happened up until the day that Christ offered up his own blood was a picture of what was to come. Now we look back to the shed blood of Christ. They look forward by the shed blood of bulls and goats and sheep and, and so forth. Without shedding of blood, there's no remission, no removal of sin. Before, in the Old Testament, it was just a covering for sin, but it was an offering that had to be made again and again and again and again. But when Jesus came and shed his own blood on the cross and made payment with his own blood, the Bible says that he sat down on the right hand of the throne of God because the payment for sin had been settled with God forever. His blood's perfect blood. It's not like the blood of bulls and goats that coagulates and, and evaporates and goes away. And needs to, needs to be spilled again for a covering. But rather, the blood of Christ is blood that never decays, that never diminishes, that never goes away. And in the Old Testament, as we see the temple and the tabernacle offerings being made and all the busyness and, that was going on about the tabernacle and the temple and all the furniture that we saw in the tabernacle and the temple, there was one piece of furniture that was never made for the priest and that was a chair. There was an altar of sacrifice, there was an altar of incense, there was a place for them to wash themselves before they went in to offer that blood. There was the cherubim, there was the, the mercy seat where the blood would be placed to cover, the, uh, to cover the broken law and the Ark of the Covenant. But there was one piece of furniture that you'll never find in the tabernacle nor in the temple, and that was a seat. 
Yet Christ sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. He is the temple. He is the tabernacle. Everything in that Old Testament pointed to that time when Christ would go up and offer up his own shed blood for the remission, the removal of sin once and for all. So the next question might, that's why Jesus had to die. So the next question might be, well, what is sin? I'm glad you asked. 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 4 defines for us what sin is. Would you take your Bibles and turn there in 1 John 3 and verse number 4? I would like for you to see this. 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 4, it's going to define for us. I love the Bible when it defines itself, and it always does, sooner or later. 1 John 3 and, and verse number 4. Look at the second half of the verse. After the word law, there's a punctuation mark, a colon. Now here it is, the definition of sin. Sin is the transgression of the law. That's a good definition. Now if you remember just a moment ago, we talked about that word transgression. Sin is getting out of the boundaries that God has set for us. That's what sin is. Sin is getting outside the boundaries that God has set for us. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it, Matthew 22, 37 through 40. The second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So what the Bible teaches us here is, again, the simplicity of salvation is hung upon two things, two principles. The boundaries are set by two things. Love God and love your neighbor. Jesus said upon these two commandments saying all the law and the prophets. God's boundaries now are expanded in the Old Testament. We know them as the Ten Commandments. For those of you who are interested, there's actually 613 of them. That's complicated. That's complicated. We know them as the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are key, the key to unlocking the door, the Lord Jesus Christ, which leads to salvation. The, the Ten Commandments are the key to unlocking the door. That's why God gave them to us. He set the boundaries. He said, look, there's only two things you need to remember. Love God and love your neighbor. Upon all the, uh, all the rest of the law and all the prophets, uh, everything else that the Bible says is founded upon those, about salvation, is founded upon those two things. Love God and love your neighbor. Do you know the Ten Commandments are split up into two divisions? The first half, so to speak, is, is the first four are fall under the category of love God. Commandments 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 fall under the category of love your neighbor. And so the commandments were given as a key to unlock the door to salvation. Jesus said, he was speaking to Pharisees, just in case you were wondering where, where I get that from, uh, in Luke eleven fifty two, 52. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees believe that you've got to keep the law. You can't eat pork. You've got to tithe of all, every, you know, everything. They would take their herbs and they would, you know, if they, if they were, uh, or got, you know, 10 pieces of mint or something like that, they'd take one, one of those and give it as an offering. I mean, that's what Jesus said, and we see it's recorded in the New Testament. And they paid attention to these little legalistic details. 
Because they believed that, that that was what was going to give them a relationship with God. And they taught everybody else to do the same thing. Jesus said in Luke eleven fifty two, 52, Woe unto you lawyers. He's talking to the Pharisees, the people that were doing this. For ye have taken away the key of knowledge. Ye entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in ye hindered. In other words, Jesus is telling them, look, you're taking the law. You're taking that key to understanding how to get through that narrow gate. You're taking the key and you're not entering in yourselves and everybody else who's coming through me, you're hindering them. They were stopping people from going to Christ and threatening that we're going to throw you out of the temple. We're going to excommunicate you. Remember the blind man? They went to his parents and said, now tell us the truth. Was he really born blind? And they were like, well, ask him. He's of age. You know why? Because they were afraid they were going to get excommunicated. Jesus was telling them, look, you took away the key. And the key to understanding and unlocking the door to salvation is the Ten Commandments. Now, if you'll take your Bibles quickly, please, and, and turn to the book of Romans, you'll find these Ten Commandments. Of course, they're in their entirety in Exodus chapter 20. But the second half, the love your neighbor part, can be found in Romans 13.9. Now, I bring this up because it is in the New Testament and it is something that the Apostle Paul used in helping other people understand how to unlock the door to salvation. And in Romans 13, 9, Paul lists the, the second half. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, adultery is not just an act. In Matthew chapter 5, matter of fact, earlier in this same sermon that Jesus was preaching in Matthew 7, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already with her in his heart. And by the way, what's good for the gander is good for the goose. You see, God gave us that law. God gave us that 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 part of the law to tell us, look, if you've ever done this, that's why you, Christ is relevant to you, because you've committed adultery, maybe just in your heart. It goes on, it says, thou shalt not kill. And I think a lot of people kind of wipe their brow and say, oh, whew, good, at least I didn't kill anybody. Sometimes we use that, you know, as an excuse. Well, they're not killing anybody. You know what the Bible says in 1 John three fifteen? Would you take and turn there? Get through just as quickly as you can. First John 3.15, it addresses that the fact that murder is not just an act. Just like adultery is just not an act, murder is just not an act. First John 3.15, this very first part of the verse is all we'll read. But First John 3.15 tells us, whosoever hateth his brother is a what? I wonder how many of us have ever said, I hate you to somebody else. How many of us, when we see a certain person, maybe hate wells up within us? Some personality, some political personality, you know what I'm saying? You know the Bible classifies that as murder. And that law, thou shalt not kill, shows us, it's the key to help us understand, that's why I need Christ. That's why Christ is relevant to my life. Uh, thou shalt not steal. Again, I think a lot of good people, moral people, say, well, at least I've never stolen anything. Well, have you ever taken an extra minute on break? 
You ever cheated on a test? You stole an answer that didn't belong to you. You stole. That makes us a thief. Thou shalt not bear false witness. That means to tell a lie. How many lies does it take to be a liar? Have you ever told a lie in your life? Uh, it says, thou shalt not covet. We're still in, in just, we're just in Romans 13, 9. Do we really even need to go to Exodus 20 to understand that every one of us has gotten out of the boundaries that God has established for us? Matter of fact, why don't we just agree with Galatians 3.22 which says, but the scripture hath concluded all under sin. <laughs> We're just sinners. Every one of us. The words straight and narrow mean that there is only one way to salvation. Only one way which leads to life. All other ways lead to destruction. Remember, go back to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to end now. Matthew chapter 7, verse number 13 says, Wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. Revelation 21.8 tells us uh, something about this as well. It says, but the fearful, this is talking about the person without Christ. The fearful, they're afraid. I think, when I think about the fearful, I think about those dear Sikh people and the Hindus. 900 million gods in the, and growing in the Hindu religion because they're afraid that maybe they missed one. And so every god that comes along, they add it to their list of 900 million and growing. The Sikhs have come all the way over and said, listen, we're just going to say God's in everything. That way we're covered. God's in this, in this pulpit, in this desk. God's in this paper. God's in that food that you eat. Because they're fearful that they're going to miss. And the Bible says, but the fearful and unbelieving, there's a group out there. They'll see that narrow way. They'll see the simplicity of salvation. And they'll say, no, there's no way. There's got to be more to it than that. It can't be that simple simple for us, hard for Christ. Amen? It can't be that easy that all I have to do is turn from everything I thought would let me have a relationship with God and put my faith in Christ alone for my hope of eternal salvation. They, they refuse. They, it's unbelief. The fearful, the unbelieving, and the abominable, they, they just do all kinds of horrible things. I read this morning out of the book of Proverbs, these six things doth the Lord hate and seven are an abomination to him. And I was actually surprised what was not on that list. Homosexuality was not on the list. Pride. Number one. Lying tongue. God actually hates a liar. Or, no, 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 stop. God hates lying. Then hate the liar. And so the Bible goes on in Revelation 28, and murderers, we already established that most of us are probably murderers because we've said, I hate you. Whoremongers, the truth is, most all of us are that too because we've lusted in our hearts. Sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, there it is, shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You know, there's two deaths for the person without Christ. Praise God, there's only one death for the person with Christ. And maybe not even that if the Lord should return. You see, the first death is our departure from the presence of one another. Revelation 21.8 says there's a second death. It's there. You can check it out. 
The second death is not a departure from one another. The second death is a departure from God. When you'll go into a Christless eternity. And your name will be blotted out of the book of life. We're talking about a separation so severe that it is as if the person without Christ has never even existed. There, hell is a terrible place. And we know much of it because the Bible speaks much about it. It's a place of torment, but I think the greatest torment of hell, to me, would be the fact that the Creator who, I know the Creator who provides for me, even provides for the lost person. He reigns on both the evil and the good. That creator that even some who, as we spoke of last week, will not even acknowledge him, will not even admit that there is a creator in heaven. They say there is no God. Yet they enjoy the benefits of oxygen, water, the beauty of the world around us. And they enjoy it. There's coming a day when that person that is without Christ, the fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death, an entire departure from the presence of God into a Christless eternity. The way that Jesus opened for us by his death, burial, and resurrection is the only way. And it's not a difficult way. All a person must do is to enter in by faith. Simply reaching out and receiving the free gift that the Lord Jesus Christ has purchased with his own blood. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Over and over again, the Bible, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Nothing more complicated than that. Believe, there's two sides to the coin of belief. One side is the side of repentance. And it's, believe it or not, it's not repenting from your sin. Acts 20, 21, the Apostle Paul explained that to the, to the pastors at Ephesus when he said, Hey, don't you remember how I came to you? I came to you teaching you... Uh, Repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the two-sided coin of belief. Repentance toward God simply means this. Repentance means a change of direction. And repentance toward God means simply this. I'm going to turn from everything that I thought was going to let me have a relationship with God, and I'm going to take God at His word that Jesus is the only way. And I'm going to trust Jesus for my relationship with God and an eternal home in heaven. That's the two-sided coin of belief. Turning from everything I thought was going to give me a relationship with God to Jesus Christ and trusting, taking God at his word and trusting Christ alone for salvation. That's the narrow gate. Jesus plus nothing. It's not a due religion. It's a done work. Would you just take a moment and bow your heads? You may be here this morning. And there's never been a time in your life when you have done what I just described. You've never turned from what you thought was going to allow you to have a relationship with God and place your faith in Christ alone. Why don't you do that this morning? Believe. Believe. 
simply believe. We communicate with God through prayer. And right there in the quietness of your own heart, if you've never done that before, now if you've done it, there, it's not something that you need to do again. Because God gives us eternal life. But there in the quietness of your heart, if you've never done what I've described, you can communicate with God and simply say something like, God, I believe. And I turn from everything I thought was going to let me have a relationship with you and I place my trust in Christ alone. If you've never done that, why don't you do that today? I want to invite you to come. 301 is the song. You can open your eyes. You can stand. You can turn in your hymn books. And we're going to sing number song 301. Noah's going to just sing it quietly off to the side here. And the invitation is this. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, will you come today? If you've never had a time in your life when you've believed on Christ alone, when you've never, and you've never trusted in Christ alone as your only hope for salvation, why don't you take care of that today? Standing as we sing on that first verse of 301, won't you come now? That's the invitation. Maybe you're here this morning. Let me say this. And you have somebody on your heart right now. God placed somebody on your heart just now. You don't know if they're saved or not. You know they're not saved. Why don't you come forward and pray for that person, for God to reveal to them how simple it is to be saved. It's not complicated. Maybe you need boldness to, to repeat some of the things that we've talked about this morning. Why don't you come during this invitation time? Maybe there's a sin that you've been convicted of, something that's not right between you and the Lord. Why don't you come during the invitation? Somebody come. I just want to say that if you're here this morning or you're listening to this by some other means, maybe podcast or whatever, if you right now do not know for sure that if you died that you'd be with God, you can from your heart, because that's where it needs to come from. It can't come from the knowledge of your head. It needs to come from the belief in your heart. You can communicate with God something like this. This is not a magic prayer. There's nothing special about these words I'm about to say, but it's, it's a communication to God from the heart. God, I know I'm a sinner. Because of my sin, I deserve to go to hell. But Father, I believe that you love me enough to send Christ to pay for my sin. And right here, right now, I place my faith in Christ as my Savior. You can communicate something like that to God right now and be saved. Whoever you are, wherever you are, within the sound of my voice, you can do that. Maybe you're here this morning and you trust Christ once and for all. Salvation is not difficult. But there's only one way. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd bless these that have come, that you'd speak to their hearts and give them peace in what matter brought them forward today. Lord, I pray that you'd Give us boldness to go out and repeat some of the things that we've said, we've heard today. Lord, I pray that you'd give us souls. I know there's people around this auditorium. I can see the tears in their eyes during this invitation time. And I know that they have a burden in their heart for a lost person, somebody that they, they believe is not saved. God, I pray that you'd give them fruit. I pray that you'd let us see souls saved. Let, let us see some come through that narrow way leads to life that we might rejoice in thee and give you all the glory in Jesus name we pray